So in January this year, I was having an interview and I was asked about which country I would like to visit next. So without really thinking much, I said <coughs> Malaysia because it's a Muslim country, in inverted commas. So then I was asked, why did you say Muslim in inverted commas? And then that got me thinking that the term Muslim country is actually very problematic. It's not that simple to define. Does Muslim country mean the government is Muslim? Does it mean that the majority of the people who live in the country are Muslim? Or does it mean that the country is run on Islamic principles? So, what is a Muslim country? Can someone name the country with the most Muslims, or any country with a large number of Muslims? Indonesia. Indonesia, exactly. 209 million people, as of 2010, are Muslim in Indonesia. Number four on the list, 134 million. Pakistan. Yep, third on the list with 167 million. Saudi Arabia as well, I don't have the figures for that, but... Probably <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So you get the idea, you know what a Muslim country is in terms of how many people are in the country, you know, how many Muslims are in that country. But now can someone say which country embodies Islamic values the most? Malaysia. England. Germany. Germany. <laughs> so we've had Germany, England, Norway, Norway. okay. See, see the difference we have here. We're talking about Muslim-majority countries, i.e. so many millions of Muslims living in these countries, yet when we talk about the countries that have Islamic principles, we're saying that actually those countries are not Muslim-majority countries. We're talking about Norway, Germany, for example. And that's the topic of my speech today. So today, I want to talk about what a real Islamic country looks like. Firstly, Islamic values are very wide. We can talk about things we look at in the Quran. One of these things is, for example, that actually there is no compulsion in religion. La ikraha fiddin, there is no compulsion in religion. If the Quran says that there is no compulsion in religion, that by definition makes those countries those non-secular states such as Iran, such as Pakistan, such as Saudi Arabia that impose religion and show great levels of religious intolerance, it makes them ironically un-Islamic as they have violated the principles of la fikra, la ikra hifiddin. So the countries that come up to mind when we think of Muslim countries for example, Pakistan. Now, Ahmadis are declared non-Muslims. So that's enforcing religious beliefs on the population. And that's a stark contrast to what we discussed in the last, me the last month's meeting. We talked about how in this Jamaat you have the opportunity to express your opinion. No one is banned from expressing their opinion or interpretation. But unfortunately, in the majority of these Muslim countries, 
the citizens are being robbed of their freedom to believe, their freedom to think. So what are real Islamic principles? And I'm going to look at this from a more economic perspective because that's something that the government can influence or supposedly can influence. And what I will tell you will not surprise you. In fact, most of you have already mentioned some of those names. But a research by an Iranian-born professor called Hussein Askari at George Washington University said that Muslim countries use religion as an instrument of control and that the countries that profess to be Islamic are unjust, corrupt and underdeveloped and are actually in fact not Islamic by any stretch of the imagination. <clears throat> so looking at the Quran as a source of inspiration in terms of Islamic economic system we can look at very basic things and then talk about more economic factors after that. So the first thing, all wealth belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. An-Nur chapter 33, and give them of the wealth of Allah which He has given you. So here we're talking about redistribution, i.e. not hoarding. Then we have the community is a trustee of the wealth. Chapter Al-Hadid, verse 7 Believe in Allah and His Messenger and spend whereof He has made you heirs. Again, this sentiment of sharing wealth and not hoarding and redistribution rather than inequality that we see in so many Muslim countries. Then we have hoarding of wealth is prohibited. Chapter At-Tawbah, verse 34 and those who hoard up gold and silver and spend not in the way of Allah announce to them a painful chastisement. And the fourth principle I want to talk about is circulation of wealth is a duty. So they're all quite related. But again, chapter Al-Hashr, verse 7. Whatsoever Allah may restore unto his messenger is due unto Allah and unto his messenger. The orphans and the needy, so that it may not be confined to the rich amongst you. So looking at these four principles of redistribution and social welfare, Rahman and Askari, who carried out this research, came up with 12 Islamic economic categories and they ranked 208 countries to create a so-called Islamicity index. And I will go through each of these different categories with an example of a country to explain how actually Islamic countries are not showing these values at all. So the first one is, the first Islamic economic category is economic opportunity and economic freedom. Now instantly when we hear the word economic freedom, that doesn't resonate with any Islamic country I can think of on the top of my mind. Only the UAE is in the top 20 in terms of the Economic Freedom Index. Now people can argue about the index or dispute it, but this is based on st statistics and actual research. So again, I think it just goes to emphasize how many of these so-called Islamic countries are not actually following the principles of the Quran.
Secondly, justice in all parts of economic management, i.e. property rights and the sanctity of contracts. Now, what does that mean in normal terms? That means basically, if you own a piece of land, that land is yours and not, the government can't come and take it. No one can say this land is mine. And what do we see in countries such as Pakistan? We see these land mafias, even in African countries, but I'm talking about Muslim countries here. So we see these, the land being grabbed by this land mafia, who suddenly they will say this land belongs to so and so, and there's no record to prove that that land belongs to that poor person, that poor farmer. So again, this Islamic principle is being violated by the Muslim countries such as Pakistan. Third economic category, better treatment of workers, including job creation and equal access to employment. So this is looking at it from the perspective of the workers, how, how are they treated? And we have famous examples in the UAE, in Qatar, when you're making these big stadiums and these big buildings, which look amazing for the Western world, but the workers who are working there, the Bangladeshi workers, or those poor workers who come from other countries, they're not being treated well at all. In fact, they're dying. And this is a Muslim country, apparently. So the fourth thing is higher education expenditure relative to GDP, so gross domestic product, the amount of output you have in the, in the economy. So Pakistan is a terrible example of this. In 2017, the literacy rate actually dropped from 60 to 58%. And we're not talking about a reduction in the growth of literacy rate. We're talking about an actual real reduction in the rate of literacy, literacy rate in Pakistan. So again, which, which Islamic principle is that following then? Because in Islam it says, in, in, according to these Islamic economic principles, you should be investing in education, but that is simply not the case. And we can maybe say it's, an, it's a cultural thing as well, but ultimately these governments are not following the principles of Islam. Another one is poverty eradication and providing basic human needs, i.e. no hoarding of wealth and less opulence in consumption. So less opulence in consumption, we think of opulence straight away, you think of Saudi Arabia, you think of these Arab states who have big cars, big houses, they go on holidays and spend you know, millions in London for example, you see it every summer. So that's one side of it. But also, the hoarding of wealth. Now this is a really important issue, because if you look at Syria, for example, and Assad's regime, or Assad's government, one of the reasons why there was civil unrest was because there was a perception that there was a minority elite monopolizing all the wealth in the country. And so there was a divide that the majority of the people felt they weren't, that their that their conditions weren't as good as that elite. So again, Syria, which is apparently a Muslim country, is in ruin because of not following this principle of hoarding the wealth with this minority. And now look at Syria, it's, it's pretty much destroyed. Another point that we've talked about a lot is the even distribution of wealth and income. And an example that comes to mind is Saudi Arabia. Now you think that Saudi Arabia is a rich country, it has a lot of oil. In fact, after Venezuela, it has the most oil reserves in the world. And it's the biggest producer of oil. And they have lavish royalty. But the reality is that half of the population live below the poverty line, despite all of that. 
So again, an Islamic country not following the principle of economic or economic inequality because there is high level of inequality. Another huge problem for Muslim countries, which we don't see in Europe, is social, social infrastructure. In Europe we have great social infrastructure, i.e. social services are provided through taxation and social welfare. So even the poorest in society will not be left behind. They will have somewhere to stay through the benefit system and they will not be left to fend for themselves. Yet, all of the top 10 countries for social expenditure in the world, every single one of them is European. There's not a single one that isn't European. So, in that sense, it shows that the European countries, in a way, are embodying, embodying the values of Islam greater than the Islamic countries themselves, or less the so-called Islamic countries. And then there's the issue of savings and investment rate, i.e. managing natural resources and depletable resources. So whereas in European countries you see a lot of recycling and making sure that if there's deforestation that other trees are planted, in Indonesia, which is blessed with oil, gas, coal and crucially palm oil, the resource depletion there threatens Indonesia's survival. So the country with the greatest amount of Muslims is not actually looking at their resource, or maybe they are, but they are not managing their resources very well. And it could lead to them in the next 20-30 years having a serious crisis in terms of their resources. In Muslim countries, Business is sometimes an issue because of the lack of trust and great level of corruption that happens. <clears throat> and there isn't that honesty and the moral standard that's required for investment. And according to Forbes, out of the, most, the top 10 most corrupt countries in the world, five of them are Muslim majority countries, and that is Iraq, Sudan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, and Somalia as the most corrupt country in the world. In fact, there's six. Six out of the top ten corrupt countries in the world are Muslim majority countries. And that just shows that despite being Muslim countries and declaring themselves as Muslim, that when they actually come to business, None of those principles are being followed in practice. And then finally, we can talk about environmental preservation. And I'll focus specifically here on air pollution. So, this is another very depressing statistic, but out of the top 10 most polluted countries in terms of air pollution in the world, seven of the top 10 most polluted countries in the world are Muslim majority countries. So those were all the different economic factors. And it just goes to show that at every single factor, a Muslim country 
is at the bottom end of the scale. And actually the European countries are at the top end of the scale. So now I'll ask you a question. Which country do you think, out of the 208 countries we had, best embodies Islamic values? Norway. Again, Norway. Denmark. Okay. Luxembourg, Belgium. Okay, <laughs> right. England, Ireland, <laughs> Scotland. Okay, so at number five, we have United Kingdom. So despite all the protests from Muslims and maybe also protests from people in the UK that Britain has become too Islamic. In terms of their actual policies, in terms of the economic policies, the UK is actually a very Islamic country. Especially when we look at social welfare, for example, and workers' rights. Number four, I think we had this mentioned, was Sweden. So again, we have those social values. Number three was Luxembourg, as you pointed out. And, um, and Denmark, you said, so number two as well. But the number one country in the world that best embodies Islamic values is Ireland. And according to this ranking, only two Muslim-majority countries made the top 50 in terms of the Islamicity index. So the first one was Malaysia at 33, and the other one was Kuwait at 48. And in the bottom 50 of this index, there were 19 Muslim countries. <laughs> so, in the land of Guinness, <laughs> leprechauns, and Conor McGregor, we've actually found more Islamic values than in all of these other countries. And the interesting thing is that it's not just that these countries have a high level of Islamicity, but actually it's linked to a greater amount of economic prosperity as well. So for example, Ireland and Luxembourg are not only top 10 for Islamicity, but also top 10 for GDP per capita in, in the world as well. So it's only one factor, but it still shows that Islamic values and economic prosperity are in some ways positively correlated. Obviously, the countries that are listed, and this is a caveat, a lot of them are a lot more established democratic nations with high levels of development. So it is a bit unfair to you know, compare some of these European countries or some of these more developed countries, which will naturally have a high level of social welfare, to say some of the other Muslim-majority countries. But it does show that the countries with the strongest economies are also those with the greatest Islamicity, i.e. that Islamic principles are the way to run the economy, or they show the, the way to run the economy. Now we can reverse this and say maybe the Islamic values are there because the economy has done so well, so that they can actually implement those social values, such as social welfare, looking after workers' rights, for example. But they both go hand in hand. So Islamic principles, although many times they are seen as something backward and something that should be avoided by European countries or by more modern countries, actually they're already implementing those values without even maybe knowing it.
And what do we take from all of this then? Well, firstly, Muslim governments need to be more like Ireland, at least in an economic sense. Now that, that doesn't mean you know, creating or producing more Guinness, but it means fostering more equal distribution of wealth, increasing access to opportunities, and crucially, investing in education. But unfortunately, Muslim governments can only achieve this, or achieve these Islamic values, by achieving economic development. And what does that require? Well, it requires the eradication of inefficient institutions, of bad economic policies, and corruption. Because the lack of development in Muslim-majority countries is not due to the religion, but it's due to the shortcomings of the government. So the next time you're asked by a friend what a Muslim country is, you don't need to look as far as Ireland. You can show them what a Muslim country looks like by taking a short ferry across to Dublin to the Islamic State of Ireland. <laughs>